me for uh, bringing rhythm this morning. Um, it wasn't until I went to college that I realized how rhythmically challenged I was. Um, see, there were a bunch of us living in a really tiny house, probably about 10 of us, who went to Seattle. And we went to Seattle, the Rainier District, to teach math in school in uh, an underprivileged community. And as part of this, we went to church together every morning, or not every morning, but every Sunday morning. And, and we spent a few weeks going to a really large multi-ethnic church, um, you know, one that claps, we don't clap very much. One that sways, we don't really sway ever. Um, but I realized very quickly that I just don't have the beat because, see, I was swaying the wrong direction and I was clapping while I really stood out clapping. Um, and my friend turns to me at the end of the service and he says, hey, Nathan, you need to stand on the end next time because this just really isn't working for the rest of us. And so around this time also I decided to take a, a ballroom dancing class because all the girls that I knew were taking one. Um, and I liked some of them, you know. And, and it was in this class that I again learned my rhythm wasn't good. Um, you see, my wife was taking the class with me at the time. We weren't dating, we were just friends. Um, but she would bypass me. And, and you know, when you're dancing in a group and, and people start bypassing you, that's kind of a sign that maybe you shouldn't be dancing. Um, but she bypassed me because friends don't let friends step on their feet, I guess. Um, but this general lack of rhythm and tone deafness in my life, uh, it led me to spend lots of time with my grandparents, which was truly great because my entire family, they play music. And I was going to throw some pictures up there from my dad's band, the Polka Kings and all this stuff, but it just didn't happen. But I went off to Grandma and Grandpa's house on Tuesdays and Thursdays and spent a lot of time with them. And, and sometimes Grandpa would be in a good mood. This happened rarely. Um, Grandpa was a product of the Depression. He lived a very hard life growing up. And, and when Grandpa was in a good mood, he would tell you stories. Stories about him living on the farm with Johnny when his mom sent him away. Stories about some of the really interesting things they ate and how hard they worked just to survive. Stories, they're so important. They tell us about people. They take a, a way for us to experience just a tiny little bit of things that people have seen in their lives and experience it through their eyes. In many ways, today, storytelling is something that we've lost. And we, I would blame social media 100% for this because we're often focused for that just one moment that we can get that picture that captures the story that, hey, we had an awesome time at the beach. Or, hey, my son, I don't have a son, but my son, they did so great. Um, you know, those sorts of moments we capture today, and we don't paint the whole picture. So today, as we look at Scripture, we're in Hebrews 11, and it's a long passage. It's a passage that, you know, I'm guessing, Pastor Ron, this could have been broken up over months of sermons, especially if we started diving into you know, all the faith giants that are listed off here, and we, we go into their stories and how important their stories are. But we have one Sunday for it. So this will be a little bit different. We're going to mix it up a little bit, change it up because James isn't here, and hey, it's the 125th anniversary. Well, really, I think we're celebrating years one through 83 or so because we're breaking this up over three weeks. Um, and that's the way my brain processes it. But while Elena is coming up, let's approach God's throne in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask that you bless our time in your word today. We ask that you use the stories that are, are laid out in this passage to remind us that you have been painting 
the picture from beginning of time when to Adam and Eve all the way to us and that we are part of that picture. We ask that you use this time to inspire us to dig deep into your scripture, uh, that you move us, and more importantly, that you draw us closer to you. Amen. So, we're mixing it up today. Yay, we're on stools, which is great because my back has been killing me for weeks. Um, so, Elena, as you were looking at this passage, it's quite a long passage. When we sat through it, it was a long passage. Um, what stood out to you? What story rose to the top? Well, okay, before I tell you what story rose to the top, I, I love hearing people's stories. I work as a hospice chaplain, and a huge part of my job involves just sitting and listening to people talk and tell me about those important moments in their lives that, that they remember and that, that are important to them in those last months or weeks of their lives. And I just think there's something so special and so wonderful about being able to just open the window on somebody's history and get a little picture into their life. And I think that's the way, it's through our stories that we tell each other and that we tell ourselves that we get to know one another. And God knows this about us. He knows that we as humans are drawn to stories. He used them throughout scripture to teach and to give the, the audience of the story deeper truths about himself and about the world around them. I think about the story of Nathaniel the prophet as he um, told King David uh, his own little story about, that confronted David about his sin with Bathsheba. And I think about the parables that Jesus told. And these, these are stories that he used to teach. He used to teach his audience truth about who God was, about the world, and about our place in the world and in, in relationship to, to God. And he connected to his audience through these stories in a way that just a plain instruction wouldn't have done. So if we pull back and look at this big picture of scripture, all of scripture is a story. It's the story of how God loved the world that he created and the people that he created and the lengths that he went to to restore the relationship that was broken by sin. That's scripture. That's, it's the story of our relationship with God. And so this passage in Hebrews gives us some like real good highlights from that story. And there are some of the most pivotal, pivotal and memorable stories, and they make up the, this bigger story. And they're the stories specifically of faithfulness, the faithfulness of God's people as it is woven throughout history. So the people listed in this passage, they're all included because they had especially noteworthy faith. In one verse in this chapter, the, the verse one of this chapter, the author defines faith as confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And each person included in this list of the faithful was confident and assured that God is trustworthy, and that he does what he says. Clearly, faith is important to God. The faith of Abraham was credited to him as righteousness. And verse 6 of Hebrews 11 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. 
not just hard to please God, it's impossible to please God without faith. So these stories in this passage, they're all inspiring. They all paint a picture. They all make us remember flannel boards. And uh, apparently there's some puppets in the attic that were used in the history of this church at one point. We didn't go digging for the puppets because we didn't want to traumatize anybody. But we know where they are. But we know where they are. So if one shows up like on your doorstep on <laughs> Halloween, I'm not saying it was from us, but it was probably from us. Uh, <laughs> uh, but my favorite of this list is the story of Noah. Uh, I've always really liked the story of Noah and the flood. I think it's because it's really dramatic. And it really, um, like it's just begging for a movie to be made. And there have been movies made, but I don't think any of them really did the story justice. But my imagination really gets going when I think about Noah. I think about what it would have been like on that boat with all the animals and the sights and the sounds and the smells. Mm. Um, and we've got three cats. and uh, Three too many sometimes. Yeah. The smells, especially, <laughs> I don't want to get too graphic, but I think about being on that boat with all of the animals from all the world, basically, and what that would have been like. I mean, it would have been just crazy in there. But what I'm really impressed about with Noah is the immense strength of his faith. I think about how hard it must have been to believe what God was saying to him in the first place let alone follow the directions that God gave him. I mean, everybody around Noah must have thought he was completely bonkers. I mean, he's here building this enormous boat out in the middle of dry land because he knows that there's going to be a flood that kills everybody. Um, now, we have a little bit experience with home improvement projects in our house, but I find it really hard to imagine the scope of what Noah was doing. In today's measurements, the ark would have been about 510 feet long, about 85 feet wide, and 81 feet tall. That's huge. That's approximately 3.1 million board feet of lumber. Thank you, Google. Um, I'm pretty sure Home Depot would have trouble filling that order. So I think about Noah and his sons, and they're building this ark because Noah took it on faith that God was going to do what he said. I imagine the ridicule that Noah must have endured from the people around him and the doubts that he himself must have had after a long day of construction as he's laying in his bed going, what am I doing? If Noah had some other job or occupation prior to building the ark, which I'm sure he, he had some way to support his family, he would have had to quit that in order to devote all of his time to this project. I bet his wife had a few questions about that. I know I would if you quit your job and started building a boat in the backyard. I guess there goes that dream. <laughs> <laughs> but when we talk about the faith of Noah, we're talking about Faith, capital F, faith. I've often wondered if I would have enough faith in what God promised me to do what Noah did, to quit my job and do something that to the rest of the world 
looks completely crazy. Not to mention incredibly difficult and outside of my skill set. Noah was probably a pretty handy guy, but I bet he didn't have much experience as a zookeeper. So when I read the story of Noah and I see it recounted in this passage of talking about faith, I have to start asking myself some tough questions like, is there anything that God has asked me to do that I've shied away from in the past because it sounded too crazy or impossible? Or is there something that he's asking me to do now? I have to take stock and ask myself if God would commend me for my faith the way he commends the people in Hebrews 11. And the story of Noah leads me to ask some of those same questions about our church community as well. But we'll come back to that. I want to know, Nathan, what person rose to the top for you as you reflected on this passage? You know, this was truly hard because we have this passage that lists off all these stories that we've seen throughout our childhood. And uh, I'm a strong believer that these stories, they don't stop speaking when we're a child. And, and often it's easy to say, well, I know this story of Noah, or I know this story of Abraham, and not read it when you hit Oh, 25, I'll just say I'm 25. Um, and, and just say it doesn't speak to me as much now. But I think about it, and I think about the stories of, like, you mentioned David and Bathsheba. Uh, we tell that story differently to our kids today than we might tell it to ourselves. Um, so these stories are really important. But the, the story that rose to the top for me was the story of Abraham, or Abram. And I had thought, Tim, that we should sing that song um, all seven verses uh, get to the hands and the feet, but then I realized, hey, my hands and feet would be moving different than everybody else's. Uh, a bit awkward. But maybe on the way home, you can sing that with your family. Um, just let me know if you did that. Um, so I picked Abraham, and Abraham's story is about 15 chapters or so in Genesis. Um, and we start out, and he's not named Abraham, he's named Abram. Um, and so I'm going to give a 10,000-foot view because we're not going to sit here and read those 15 chapters. We start out at this story around chapter 12, and God says to Abram, you know, leave this land, to take your family, which would be your wife and your nephew Lot, and I'm going to go create a great nation of you. I'm going to give you some new land. And so Abraham is obedient, and he takes his wife, and he takes his nephew, and they set out on this grand adventure to this land that God has promised. They travel through all sorts of different lands, and they hit Egypt, and this is the part of the story that always makes me chuckle a little. And Abram turns to his wife, and he says, uh, yeah, sorry, uh, you're hot. Um, I'm afraid that people are going to kill me to take you, so why don't you just be my sister um, and pretend to be my sister at this point? And I always wonder what went through her head. Uh, probably not a very positive conversation. <laughs> um, but they leave Egypt, and everything goes okay, everything's good. Lot and Abraham, or Abram, split ways, and they go their separate directions, but not for long because Abram comes back and rescues Lot. And in about this time, Abraham, I'm going to just call him Abraham going forward because I'm switching back and forth, but Abraham uh, has a conversation with God, and, and he expresses his doubt to God, saying, God, where is my heir? It's been a while, God. I need to have an heir. Am I going to be leaving my land and my people and my sheep and everything to uh, my, 
uh, servants. And God says, well, I'm going to be faithful. Here's some land. Look up into the stars. See all those stars in the sky? That's how many descendants you're going to have. At this point, they still don't have a child. And uh, Abraham and Sarah, they must get tired or something. And, and they say, well, maybe God helps those who help themselves out. And they decide to have a child with uh, Sarah's slave, Hagar. Um, the boy is born. His name is Ishmael. Uh, and life goes on. And around age 99, so it's been 25 years now, just think about this and think about your story and how old you are in different aspects of your life. But he's 99 at this point. Uh, God comes back and says, Serve me faithfully, Abraham, and blamelessly, and I will give you countless descendants. At this point, God renames Abraham and Sarah. I renamed them a couple passages ago because it was easier to say, but God renames them. He introduces the, the covenant of circumcision, and lo and behold, they have a son, and his name is Isaac. Now, the story doesn't end there. The story ends with God saying, well, it doesn't end, but it continues with God saying, hey, Abraham, I gave you that son, Isaac. Uh, now take that son, Isaac, go up on that mountain and sacrifice him. You know, to us in the Western society where we live, this sounds really awful, but at the time, child sacrifice wasn't, uh, it happened a little bit more often than we'd like. So Abraham complies. I often wonder, as, as he's complying, what's going through his head? Is, is he saying, God, you finally gave me an heir. I trust you, and I, I believe you. Or is he saying, I'm going to do this because you're God, and I'm not? Um, there's a lot of things that go through my mind with this story. But Abraham goes up on the mountain. Luckily, God, as God always does, he provides something right in the nick of the time, and there's a ram to sacrifice instead of his son Isaac. So how do we relate to this story, especially a story told at 10,000 feet up? Um, I don't know about you, but are you planning on having kids at 75? What about 100? Yeah, I, I don't think so. Um, but one aspect that we can draw out of this story is that God has a plan. And he lays out that plan for Abraham over and over and over again. This plan is that Abraham is going to become a great nation that he's going to be blessed, that he's going to have land. We also see that sometimes plans, they don't necessarily go in our timing. You know, it would it'd be nice for God to say, hey, you're going to have a son. Lo and behold, 9, 10, 12 months later, however long it takes, you have a son. Um, but that's not the way it worked out in this story. It took 25 years we were to read this entire story we'd see that abraham on countless occasions expressed his doubt to god he said god where's this heir god i don't believe you I'm, I'm waiting here we're doing the things that make kids and it's not happening when's this going to happen i think another thing that we can pull out of this story of abraham is this idea that uh and it's an age-old idea and it must be written somewhere in scripture uh that god helps those who help themselves out that's somewhere in scripture i don't know maybe in nathaniel 13 13 it is um but we see them fall into that situation that we fall into sometimes uh when ishmael is born we see him living into the doubt it's not just speaking the doubt it's the living into it not trusting believing that hey god you're a little bit slow i can just make this happen 
As we hit the part of the story with Abraham where he goes up on the mountain with Isaac, I often wonder deeply what's going on in his head. Maybe when we get to heaven someday, we have this long list of things that we're going to ask people. But that's something that's on my list. Okay, Abraham, what was going on in your head in in this moment? Be honest. You can use whatever language you want. Tell me what was going on in your head. But we see that Abraham is faithful and that his his final faithfulness is blessed. And it's blessed big. He becomes the father of the nation. So in this story, there's lots of things that come and connect with our lives. You know, sometimes we doubt. Sometimes we fail to listen to God's vision. Uh, sometimes we don't believe God's vision for our personal lives or our community. Sometimes we're so impatient that we decide we're going to make things happen on our own. I, I know I've done that myself. Sometimes we just don't trust And uh, sometimes um, men are stupid, like Abraham was, when he told Sarah to pretend to be his sister. That's not in the Bible, but that's my commentary. Men can be stupid. Um, However, in the end, we see that God is always faithful. God, he always has a plan. God, he is always with us. This is both true personally, as we walk with God and we read scripture and we pray and we seek after him. And it's also true as we seek him as a community. So this week, and this isn't the end, so this sounds like the end, but it isn't the end because I have a question for her. But this week I I give you a partial challenge to to go look at this passage if you haven't. Pull out a few of the stories that you think you know and read them and realize how well you know them afterwards. So, Elena, what else did you pull out of this besides the story of Noah? Well, Nathan... (laughs) I'd like to look back at the first verse of the chapter. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. When I read this verse, uh, I I had to step back and ask the question, what are we hoping for? What am I hoping for? I have to wonder what it is that God has promised us as a church, and what response does he want from us in relation to that promise? I think we can agree that as a people, as a church, we're confident in the hope of eternal life held out in the scriptures. We are assured in our belief in a triune, righteous, loving God who created us and redeemed us and promises to be with us always. We have faith, but is there something more to which God is calling us? As a congregation, First Free Methodist is part of God's big C church, his bride. We are called to be salt and light in an increasingly tasteless and dark world. So is there something specific that God wants us to do as part of that calling? In the Great Commission... God told his disciples, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything he had commanded. And for the past 125 years, the people of First Free Methodist have fulfilled that calling in many different ways. And just like the author of Hebrews does in chapter 11, 
it's right for us to celebrate the faithfulness of those generations that came before us. But as we look ahead to the coming years, I think we need to be asking God how he wants to add to our story. In 20 years from now, or 50, or another 125, I want the people of Spokane First Free Methodist to be able to look back and say things like, by faith, the congregation of First Church led hundreds or thousands of people to the Lord. They saw lives changed. They saw their community changed for the better. By faith, they heard God's call to do what seemed impossible, and they obeyed. And the world was blessed because of it. Now, there's a key to all of this, and that is staying attuned to God's will. And in order for us to follow his leading, we have to be regularly asking what his leading is and listening to what he says. We need to be continually devoting ourselves to prayer and scripture. And if we feel that God is leading us to do something that seems a little crazy for his glory, we need to have the faith and the courage to step forward with boldness and do what he asks. And just like Sarah did, we need to trust that God who promises is faithful and he will do what he says. What about you, Nathan? What stood out? Well, uh, this sermon went a different direction than we talked with James about, uh, which is nice because he's not here, right? Um, I hope his race is going well. We should be praying that his race is going well. Uh, when we started out planning, the initial idea was, hey, we're going to look back over the last, we've been here 19 years and 50-some weeks. I can't quite remember, but almost 20 years. And, and look at that journey of talk about the people that poured into us. Some of them are here. Uh, some of them are not. Um, and I started typing that up as part of this, and I realized quickly that we were at three pages. Um, and that was after about 10 minutes. And every time I thought I was done, there would be another story that I would remember of when somebody talked to me and I remembered, oh, that affected the way that I looked at life. Um, and then I started bringing my kids into it, and wow, we do a good job pouring into kids in this church, and that list got really long and, and emotional, and I don't do emotions. Um, so I, I put that in the garbage can on my computer and said, yeah, we're not going to do emotion on a Sunday morning, that's for somebody else. Um, so we're going to skip that, but I think it's a really important process to go through, is to look back at your faith journey and say, hey, this person, take, for example, my Sunday school in second grade, his name was Ernie, he was really impactful in my life. Thank God for him, and also thank him if he's still alive. I don't think he is at this point, but it's a good thing to do. But when I was looking at this passage, what stood out to me other than all of the storage was verse 13. And verse 13 says something like this. All these people were still living by faith when they died, they did not receive the things that were promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Why this verse strikes me hard is that all these people were still living by faith when they died. I don't know about your age group and your friends, but in my group, there's a lot of people who have given up on the faith. Maybe they were raised in the faith, or they, they went to a church in their early 20s and 30s, and now they're done. 
They've decided, well, I'm done with God, or maybe I'm going to just be spiritual, um, and they've left the church. Or there's others that have decided, hey, I'm done with people. And so they've left the church, and they've decided that they're going to do faith alone. And while we've seen through history that that can be done, God uses monks all the time, or whatever female monks are called, um, monkess, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, God has hardwired us to be in community. And it's important for that community that we're in, and this is why we love First Church, um, to be diverse, to be diverse in generations, diverse in life perspectives, diverse in races, diverse in genders. Well, there's only two, but diverse. It's important for your community to be diverse because we're called to pour into those who are different than us, those who are younger, those who are older, uh, just like people poured into me in this church. And we're called to pour into people so that they see Jesus, the Jesus who heals, the Jesus who's there when you have a really bad moment and you need somebody and you know that he's there with you, the Jesus who wants more for us, the Jesus who has a vision for our lives. As I was reading this week, I was reminded of the story of Paul and Barnabas as they're returning to Antioch in Acts. And this happens in chapter 14. I think it's around verse 22 or so. And the verse says they, referring to Paul and Barnabas, strengthened the believers. They encouraged them to continue in faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. We talked about the kingdom of God a few weeks ago, I think. But they must suffer hardships. They must continue to pour into people. This is what community does. This is what I should be doing. This is what you should be doing. It's what we should do. Throughout life, I've had this phrase. And this phrase goes something like this. It's something that I adopted probably about the age of 13. It sounds like something a 13-year-old would say. Um, I have one right now. Uh, the phrase is, life sucks, then you die. Um, I even saw it point, oh yeah, look, it's in cross-stitch, it's amazing, it's a great phrase. Um, real, really not. I, I saw one of my daughters working on a school project this week, and she was going to make a family crest, and she asked, how do I convert this to Latin? So she looked up this phrase in Latin, and she was going to write it on there. And I realized that was a really bad parenting moment. Um, <clears throat> you see, what she was saying is, something that I don't believe. It's something that's like, hey, God, life is too hard. It's given me too many challenges. I'm going to just sit here until I die. Or God, hey, I have a disability. I'm going to live into that disability, whatever it is, and I'm not going to do anything. Or God, hey, I'm 99. I'm done pouring into people. Or maybe I'm 40, and I'm done pouring into people. It's the life sucks mentality. I got really angry at myself for this parenting moment. Because I didn't realize how often I said it. I mean, I hit my hand with my hammer. Well, I usually say something else. But then quickly comes, well, life sucks and you die. It was a poor parenting moment. It made me mad. But around the same time, I was reading through this passage again and reflecting on this passage. And I hit verses 39 and 40. And they say this. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so better for us, so that only together with us they would be made perfect. This passage says it all. 
God lays out this vision. We listen to that vision by reading scripture, by praying and practicing spiritual disciplines, and being a community. We stick to this vision. It leads us to something better. And get this. This is the hard part. We may not see the fruits of that vision in our lifetime. But we know that with God, all things are going to be made perfect. This verse is so counter to my phrase, life sucks, then you're going to die. It's more like, hey, that path, it may be hard. But if you're faithful and you follow, it will be made perfect. God has a plan. just want you to think about how often in our personal lives, and especially in our church lives as we reflect over the last 125 years, have we played it safe? Have we internally or externally said, God, we will only do this if you make it simple, if you make it easy, if you make the path so clear that even somebody who's blind can see that path, then we're going to do it. And I believe he does that. But sometimes we use that as an excuse. I think back to when you were in seminary and I was in grad school. Uh, that was a really hard period in our life. Don't do grad school both at the same time with young kids. It's a bad idea. Um, but it was a really hard time in our lives, and I remember saying that to God. And, well, God was faithful and provided, but I don't think that was what I should have said. That's not what this verse or the section of verses at the end says. It says, hey, they had faith. They knew God was all about something better. And together, it would be perfect. So if you're like me, I have a superpower. I don't know if you know that, but my superpower is being an Eeyore. I'm one of those super-duper critical people. Typically, I work as a, a software engineer, and I pick out bugs from people's code, so it's great to be critical there, but maybe not in real life. But I'm an Eeyore, and it's easy for me to realize that I don't look for a vision. I look for what went wrong. So at this point in our life, especially in my life, it's important to know that God has a vision for me. He has a vision for our church, whether we're here for six days, which I think we'll be here a lot longer, six months, six years, 60 years, or 600 years, God has a vision. All he's doing is he's waiting for us to be faithful, to seek after him, to listen to him, and know that when we have that wee bit of faith, whatever we do, it's going to be made perfect as long as it's with him. So we're going to end in a time of prayer. And as Tim and Jeremy come up and, and bring that rhythm that we need, um, we're going to do a prayer that's written by Walter Brueggemann. Uh, I really like Walter Brueggemann. Um, and this is written in his book, Gift and Task. Um, and as I read it a few months ago, it became central to my life, so central that, hey, I emailed it to myself, and it sits at the top of my email box, just as something to reflect on. And we're going to do it a little bit differently than it's written, but it should be up on the screen when Kyle presses the magic button. Yeah. Okay, so there's his prayer. We're going to pray the first sentence, and then we're going to take a few moments to personally talk to God. And I'll, I'll give you some guiding things to think about. So why don't we enter prayer? And the prayer goes, uh, Living God, we thank you for our ancient mothers and fathers in the faith. Church, take a few moments to thank God for the story that he's been painting from Adam and Eve all the way to you.
Thank God for those who've impacted your walk. For those who taught you about Jesus. Maybe it was a teacher. Maybe it was your parents. Maybe it was a good experience at camp. Maybe it was somebody dropping you a note on a really bad day that just changed it for you. Take a few moments to thank God and to reflect on those people who've been important to you. goes on to say, uh, grant that we may be good heirs to their discipline, their passion, and their courage, talking about our, our faith mothers and faith fathers. Church, take a few moments to look forward. Whether you are six years old or 106, look forward. Being good heirs is all about passing the faith on to those uh, around us, like those who did it before for us. Ask God what this looks like in your life. It's probably different for every one of us. Are there people that God is calling you to pour into? People that God is calling you to love? Are there places where he's asking you to risk? that's been here long and has been founded in him where his people thrive and all God's people said